You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of May 4th, 2023. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Casa Bonita, Sip and Paint by Joe Davis. The Jeffco Transcript. RV Resort, proposed at I-70 and C-470 by Deb Hurley-Brobst for the Jeffco Transcript. Arvada Mayor warns against polarization in final state of the city. Outgoing Mayor Williams looks back on 24 years it, on the days. By Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press. And pedestrian counts show major impacts along Golden's Washington Avenue. New downtown traffic signals forthcoming by Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript. Local Sphere Kroger Albertson's merger will have negative impact by Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript and following up with various articles. Casa Bonita Sip and Paint by Joe Davis. The residents of Lakewood and surrounding communities await, quote, the Great Wait in Line event, also known as the Grand Reopening of Casa Bonita Restaurant. For those impatient for the May 23rd opening, there are events like the April 26th Casa Bonita Sip and Paint, hosted by West Fax Brewery and Arts in the open. RV Resort, proposed at I-70, C-470, by Deb Hurley-Brobst. The owners of 36 acres on Rooney Road want to put an RV resort on the property, and this wouldn't be an average RV park. Westside Resort, which says it owns the property, wants to create a destination location, including a 25,000-square-foot clubhouse with a five-star restaurant, laundry, retail, fitness space, gathering space, and more, plus motorhome suites, a gas station, and vehicle repair area, according to Marcus Pachner with the Pachner Company, who represented the owners at a community meeting on April 25th. Pachner explained to 15 people on the Zoom call that the two parcels, most of which are across the street and north of the Thunder Valley Motocross Park, would be a gateway destination for RV users. The property is nestled against Interstate 70 and C-470, so it would have limited visual impacts to any nearby businesses or homes, he said. The community meeting is the first step before the owners file a formal application with Jefferson County to rezone the property from agricultural to planned development. No one at the meeting expressed concerns about the proposal. Packner said since the pandemic, more people are traveling by recreational vehicles and wants places with amenities to stay that can be used as bases as they explore the area. The location is the perfect place for RV users to visit outdoor areas in Jeffco and beyond, he said. Rules would be in place so no one could stay more than 30 days and caretakers would live on site to monitor activities, Packner said. 
pets would be allowed. Pechner said Westside Resort would continue to be an owner in the development, though other partners would be brought in to help with the site. Pechner said the owners want to work with neighbors to address their concerns about the development, noting that he was willing to meet with neighbors who want to discuss the proposal. Pechner can be reached at Marcus, M-A-R-C-U-S, at thepechnercompany.com. The Pechner, P-A-C-H-N-E-R, company.com. Arvetta Mayor warns against polarization in final state of the city. Outgoing Mayor Mark Williams looks back on 24 years on the days. By Riley Dunn. Arvetta Mayor Mark Williams recently gave his final state of the city, capping 24 years as an elected official by looking back on how the city has changed and looking forward to what lies ahead including an upcoming election that promises to overhaul a council that's remained fairly consistent for the last few years. Williams, who began serving on city council in 1999 as a council member, was elected mayor 12 years ago, began his address by comparing the the city two decades ago to Arvada of the present. Quote, In 1999, there was no gold line or transit hub, Williams said in the April 21 address. 72nd Avenue was not an east-west corridor. 24 years ago, we maintained 780 lane miles of paved streets. Today, that number has nearly doubled to 1440. In 1999, we didn't have the Jefferson Parkway to complete the missing link of the Beltway. Okay, we still don't have it, but I'm telling you, there is still a chance. Williams discussed the reinvigoration of Old Town and Arvada's business coming together, community coming together to weather the COVID-19 pandemic. He praised partnerships such as the city's relationship with the Apex Parks and Recreation District and the Jefferson County School District as strengths of the city's management and leadership. Discussing the murder of two Arvada police officers over the past two years, Gordon Beasley in 2021 and Dylan Bakoff in 22, Williams recounted the dark days their passing brought to the city and the outpouring of grief and support that the community offered the police department in the aftermath. Looking to the present, Williams cited homelessness as a primary concern as the city moves forward and said the city team was looking to enact legislation that would criminalize actions by homeless individuals. Quote, one challenge facing the entire city, but acutely felt by the police department is the increase of visible homeless in our community. Williams said, City Council has requested our city attorney explore additional actions we can take to address criminal activity by some members of the homeless community and to clear out homeless camps more quickly. Williams recalled the infamous trash hauling debate that set off a recall attempt in 2020 and praised council's ability to come together despite disagreements and form a unified front on the issue. One of the more contentious issues during my time as mayor has been the issue of organized waste hauling. In fact, I think it was the longest hearing we have held, Williams said. We were divided as a council, yet when the decision was made to implement organized waste hauling with a single hauler, 
The council spoke with one voice to direct our team to come up with an appropriate program. Williams concluded his address by discussing the upcoming municipal election, which looks to bring turnover to the mayor's seat and at least one at-large position. He cautioned against, by, against partisan politics, which have been employed early on by candidates in districts two and four, said that council works best when they work together. As my time on council and as your mayor draws to an end, I urge future councils to continue on in the tradition of mutual respect and when disagreements exist, to disagree agreeably, Williams said. It has served us well. Sadly, partisan politics is creeping into municipal elections. I would remind everyone that there are no Republican, Democrat, or Libertarian potholes, water lines, or wastewater mains. Williams continued. Following his State of the City address, mayoral candidate John Marriott, who currently serves as the District 3 City Council member and is the only filed candidate in the mayor's race so far, thus far, took to Facebook to call the address fantastic, which Williams responded to with an endorsement. I have endorsed John to be the next mayor to carry on the great work we have done together, Williams said in a comment. In closing his State of the City address, Williams said that he will remain one of the city's biggest supporters and is looking ahead to a thriving future for Arvada. I will remain the city's cheerleader from the cheap seats and know that the future bodes well for Arvada, Williams said. With that said, and without reservation, the state of the city for Arvada, Colorado is bright and limitless, end quote. Rock-throwing suspects, homicide suspects, affidavits, paint grim portrait of April 19 events by Riley Dunn. Arrest affidavits, including statements from two of the three suspects in the rock-throwing death of Alexa Bartel, suggest that suspects Joseph Koenig, Nicholas Mitch, Carol Chick, and Zachary Zvak Quack have a history of throwing projectiles at cars, photographed Bartel's car after throwing a fatal rock through her windshield and discussed plans to deny involvement in the crime. Koenig, Carol Chick, and Quack, all 18-year-old residents of Arvada, were taken into custody by Jefferson County Sheriff's deputies on the evening of April 25th, almost a week after the murder of 20-year-old Bartel, who was one of seven motorists whose vehicles were hit by large landscaping rocks on the night of April 19th. While Koenig declined to be interviewed by investigators, Carol Chick and Crack gave somewhat conflicting accounts that points to a repeated pattern of throwing projectiles at moving vehicles. Carol Chick told investigators that he and Koenig have been involved in throwing objects, including a statue and other rocks, on at least 10 separate days. Quote, since at least February. The following account is based on the allegations of in the affidavits. On April 19th, Carol Chick and Koenig bought a project car, according to Carol Chick, around 4 or 5 p.m., after which Carol Chick moved the car to a friend's house, drove to Quack's house to pick him up, and then continued to get Koenig. Carol Chick's statement says, 
that he and Quack both collected landscaping rocks from the Walmart on 72nd Avenue and Sheridan Boulevard, loading them up into the bed of Carol Chick's pickup, a Chevrolet Silverado 1500. Fourth man said he was with the trio at Walmart, but asked to be taken home when he suspected the group might be preparing for trouble. The fourth man said he, the group was loading up, quote, as much rocks as they could carry into the vehicle and said Koenig frequently participates in disruptive behavior because he likes to cause, quote, chaos. Investigators used cell phone data and crime reports to determine that the rock that killed Bartel was one of seven incidents of landscaping rocks being thrown at cars in a large semicircular area stretching from Highway 72 in the south, Highway 93 in the east, Highway 128 in the north, and Indiana Street in the west. Quack's statement claims that while the trio was traveling around, Koenig was driving the vehicle, Carol Chick was riding in the front passenger seats, and Quack was in the back row behind Carol Chick. Quack and said Carol Chick was using, quote, marine terms as the rocks were thrown, such as contact left, before Koenig would throw a rock at a car to the left of theirs. Quack and Koenig threw the rock that killed Bartel. Quack said that Koenig sped up as the group's vehicle approached Bartel, then threw a rock out the window that made a loud sound like a railgun shooting a block of concrete. Afterward, Quack noticed that Bartel's vehicle had left the roadway. They reached the next intersection and turned around to return to where it left the road. As they passed Bartel's vehicle, Quack took a picture of Bartel's vehicle. He told investigators that he thought Carol Chick or Koenig would want it as a memento. Carol Chick said all three suspects threw rocks at cars. He claimed that Quack threw the rock that killed Bartel and corroborated Quack's account that the trio turned back toward Bartel's car so that Quack could take a photo. Carol Chick said that at this point in the night he felt, quote, a hint of guilt. Crack said that after circling back to Bartel's car, Koenig took him home. He told investigators that Koenig and Carol Chick discussed now being blood brothers and stated that they could never speak of the incident. Crack also said that Koenig came to his house the next day to get their story straight, specifically to deny any involvement in the events of the previous night. Leave the Baby Animals Alone, a plea from Colorado Parks and Wildlife by Joe Davis. Jefferson County Animal Control officers recently rescued a baby fox from a window, an incident that serves as a reminder to residents about coexisting with local wildlife. Colorado Parks and Wildlife warns Jeffco residents to resist the urge and stay away from wild animals, especially babies. According to CPW Public Information Officer Bridget O'Rourke, spring is a lot of a is a time of a lot of animal activity in the wild. Quote, now through the end of June is when the next generation of young wildlife is being born, O'Rourke said. And bears are starting to come out of their winter dens, and they're looking for food. And so, what we've seen over the course of the past few years 
as people start to see young wildlife more visible in their backyards and on trails. Bears and their young are not the only animals you can encounter in the area. Others include deer, elk, baby pronghorn, moose calves, fox cubs, and even birds that have fallen out of their nests. O'Rourke said the problem comes when humans try to interfere when they see a baby animal alone in their yard or on a trail. What people think is that, oh, they need to be rescued. I'm going to help them out. I'm going to put them in the back of my truck, or I'm going to chase them and try to find the mother, she said. But doing any of these things is a major mistake, O'Rourke said. Interfering with wildlife leads to consequences for everyone. Quote, it's very common for mothers to leave their young wildlife in one specific place as they're trying to look for food, she said. In particular with moose, as we've seen this more with deer as well, if you try to approach their babies, the moose will charge an attack. And people have been physically hurt. They've lost teeth, they've broken arms, they've broken ribs. She went on to explain how baby birds learn to fly by flopping out of the nest. So that baby bird in the middle of the yard or on the trail could be in the middle of a lesson. Even if they've fallen out of the nest, O'Rourke urges residents to leave the babies alone. What people do is they go and they touch the baby bird. They try to put them back in the nest. They remove the bird from the situation altogether and bring it into our office. At that point, there is nothing that CPW can do. The mother is never going to take it back after that many humans since, she said. There's no way for us to put it to a rehab center or put it back to its nest. An attempt to save a baby bird thus ends up creating a dire situation. CPW's new campaign is to stop people from interfering with animal life. According to O'Rourke, homegrown efforts to save a baby animal often leads to killing them. The common thing that we see is people will see maybe a pronghorn or baby deer and that they will bring it into our office, she said. Sometimes we're able to find a rehab center. Sometimes the animal is in so much distress, it's hyperventilating and it's dehydrated. And it has to be euthanized. Some people take the animals home and try to feed them themselves. These, those animals get violently ill, throwing up and diarrhea because they've been fed things like Nutrigrain bars which their stomachs can't handle. CBW wants the public to understand that it's a privilege to be in a state with 960 species of wildlife. We need to learn, quote, how to live in harmony with wildlife. Give them their space and respect them, O'Rourke said. Call CPW's Denver office at 303-291-7227 or go to its website for more information immediately if you see baby animals who look sick, in distress, or abandoned. Don't touch or approach them and remove your pets from the area. Colorado Community Media staff wins eight awards. SPJ competition featured news from four states. Staff reports, Colorado Community Media. Colorado Community Media staff netted eight awards during the annual Top of the Rockies contest hosted by the Society for Professional Journalists, or SPJ, in downtown Denver on April 22nd. 
With 24 newspapers across the front range, CCM New Reporters competed in the large newsroom category, which included larger publications and outlets from Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, and Wyoming. CCM had two first-place honors. Evergreen reporter Deb Hurley-Bropes took the top honors in the category of obit reporting for her article on Mandy Evans, who, quote, gave more to the community than great food. South Metro editor Thelma Grimes took first place in the mental health writing category for a series she and two high school interns wrote in 2022. The, quote, Need to Succeed series broke down how the combination of college costs Social media and parent societal expectations is costing kids their childhoods. Several CCM staff members won second place honors. Luke Zarzecki took second place in the feature long form category for his story titled Uprooting the American Dream Opinions Changing About Lush Lawns. For general reporting in a series or package, several South Metro staff members combined for a second place award. Former reporters Jessica Gibbs and Elliot Winsler, along with Grimes and current CCM reporter McKenna Harford, took an extensive look throughout 2022 at the Douglas County School District's termination of former Superintendent Corey Wise. In Enterprise Reporting, former Littleton reporter Robert Tan won for his in-depth look at police chases that span over Douglas and Arapahoe counties. Our veteran reporter Riley Dunn won third place for her in-depth look at parents in the Jefferson County School District. Dunn's article, Inside Jeffco Kids First and Ganahl's Fuhrer Over Students, won in the education news category. For extended coverage, CCM's digital editor Deborah Grigsby won third place honors for her coverage of mobile home legislation in 2022. In design, CCM's Tom Fildy won third place for single-page design where he featured a photo page of a wildlife wildfire impacting bighorn sheep. Denver's Fashion Week returns to City's Runways. Coming attractions by Clark Reader. Everybody has an outfit or two they love but don't have the occasion or courage to pull out of the closet. Celebrating style like that and providing an opportunity to bust out these gyms is one of the main reasons Denver Fashion Week has continued to grow year over year. Denver Fashion Week is a great opportunity to step out of your comfort zone, said Haley Hodap, the event's runway director and producer. We hope people look at the aesthetic and vibes of this year's shows and find something that speaks to them. And then they'll have an excuse to wear something they'd never wear otherwise. Denver's Fashion Week runs from Saturday, May 6th through Saturday, May 13th at the Brighton. 3403 Brighton Boulevard in Denver in the Rhino Art District. This year's event features six shows, each with an approach all their own. Local Couture at 7 p.m. on Saturday, May 6th. Kids Couture at 11.30 a.m. on Sunday, May 7th. Sustainable at 5 p.m. on Sunday, May 7th. Fashion Industry Workshop at 6.30 p.m. on May 8th. 
Ready to Wear at 6 p.m. on Tuesday, May 9th. Streetwear and Sneakers at 6 p.m. on Wednesday, May 10th. Guided by Humanity Fashion Show and Fundraiser at 6 p.m. on Thursday, May 11th. International and Local Boutiques at 7 p.m. on Saturday, May 13th. Of note is the Sustainable Show, an issue which HODAP said has become increasingly important in the fashion world in recent years. How sustainable is it to buy a $20 shirt every other month? How does that impact our world? She said. We're seeing the industry become more purposeful in its use of materials and more designers taking something old and finding ways to make it new again. Many people may not think of Denver as a major fashion hub. Its reputation has been growing. And one of the joys of Denver Fashion Week is the way it celebrates local creatives and matches them with talents from all over the country and world. That's what makes the fashion industry, workshop, and international and local boutiques important. They're a bridge to a wider community. I hope people who attend this year are inspired and have their eyes opened to the creative industries, Hodap said. It'd be great if more people understand and appreciate what goes into the clothes they wear, because the inspiration can come from anywhere, and people take that for granted. Designers put so much time and care into every stitch. For full details and tickets, visit denverfashionweek.com. Get lost in Benchmark's Great Wilderness. Samuel D. Hunter's A Great Wilderness is the kind of story that shines on stage. It brings audiences in close as the characters tackle extremely complex and challenging questions about religion, identity, and personal conviction. Directed by Mark Stith, the show runs at Benchmark Theater, 1560 Teller Street in Lakewood through Saturday, May 13th. Performances are at 8 p.m. Thursday through Saturday and 2 p.m. on Sunday. According to provided information, the show is about Waltz, the leader of a Christian retreat that tries to cure gay teens. But just as he's about to retire, a final client causes him to question the work he's been doing. Get tickets for this moving show at benchmarktheater.com slash tickets dash a dash great dash wilderness. Be barbecue ready this summer with Backyard Pitmasters. We're entering prime BBQ season, but many people, myself included, don't know much about the delicious, delicious art of barbecuing. For the uninitiated, Backyard Pitmasters Colorado is here to provide all you need to become a legendary chef. The Barbecue University events are three-hour classes that teach, quote, the art of smoking great meat in a non-competitive and fun environment at local breweries, distilleries, and other community-driven venues. You can attend one at 10 a.m. on Saturday, May 6th at Mad Rabbit Distillery. 10, 860 North Dover Street, number 2000 in Westminster, or at 1 p.m. on Saturday, May 13th at Mother Tucker Brewery, 2360 East 120th Avenue in Thornton. Find all the details at colorado.brisketu.com, the letter U. At Clark's Concert of the Week, Lil Wayne at Fillmore Auditorium. 
I don't really have to tell you who Lil Wayne is, do I? He's the young money millionaire with criteria that can't be compared to your career because it just isn't fair. His run as the best rapper alive in the late 2000s was absolutely incredible, and he's still capable of effortless bars whenever he feels like it. Rap doesn't have a lot of elder statesman figures still out on the road, so the fact that Wheezy is coming to the Fillmore Auditorium, 1510 Clarkson Streets in Denver at 7 p.m. on Sunday, May 7th, means you should definitely take notice. Get tickets at LiveNation.com. Depressed could be front-range pollution. Studies, observations indicate possible link to mental well-being. By Jim Robbins, KFF Health News. In the 1990s, residents of Mexico City noticed their dogs acting strangely. Some didn't recognize their owners, and the animals' sleep patterns had changed. At the time... The sprawling mountain-ringed city of more than 15 million people was known as the most polluted in the world, with a thick, constant haze of fossil fuel pollution trapped by thermal inversions. In 2002, toxicologist and neuropathologist Lillian Calderon Garciduenas, who was affiliated with both Universidad del Valle de México in Mexico City and the University of Montana, examined brain tissue from the dogs that had lived in the city and 40 others from a nearby rural area with cleaner air. She discovered the brains of the city dogs showed signs of neurodegeneration while the rural dogs had far healthier brains. Calderon Garciduenas went on to study the brains of 203 human residents of Mexico City, only one of which did not show signs of neurodegeneration. That led to a conclusion that chronic exposure to air pollution can negatively affect people's olfactory systems at a young age and may make them more susceptible to neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Particulate matter really matters. The pollutant that plays, quote, the big role in particulate matter said Calderon Garcidoinas, not the big ones, but the tiny ones that can cross barriers. We can detect nanoparticles inside neurons, inside glial cells, inside epithelial cells. We also see things that shouldn't be there at all, titanium, iron, copper. The work the Mexican scientist is doing is feeding a burgeoning body of evidence that shows breathing polluted air not only causes heart and lung damage, but also neurodegeneration and mental health problems. It's well established that air pollution takes a serious toll on the human body, affecting almost every organ. Asthma, cardiovascular disease, cancer, premature death, and stroke are among a long list of problems that can be caused by exposure to air pollution, which, according to the World Health Organization, sits atop the list of health threats globally, causing 7 million deaths a year. Children and infants are especially susceptible. Sussing out the impact of air pollution on the brain has been more difficult than for other organs because of its inaccessibility. So it has not been researched as thoroughly, according to researchers. 
Whether air pollution may cause or contribute to Alzheimer's or Parkinson's is not settled science. But Calderon Garcedueñas' work at the leading edge is at the leading edge of showing that air pollution goes directly into the brain through the air we breathe and has serious impacts. Some psychotherapists report seeing patients with symptoms stemming from air pollution. Not only does the pollution appear to cause symptoms or make them worse, it also takes away forms of relief. Quotes, if we exercise and spend time in nature, we become extra resilient, said Kristen Greenwald, an environmental social worker and adjunct professor at the University of Denver. A lot of folks do that outside. That's their coping mechanism. It's soothing to the nervous system. On polluted days, a lot of her clients, quote, can't go outside without feeling they are making themselves more sick or distressed. Megan Herting, who researches air pollution's impact on the brain at the University of Southern California, said environmental factors should be incorporated in doctors' assessments these days, especially in places like Southern California and Colorado's Front Range, where high levels of air pollution are a chronic problem. When I go into a medical clinic, they rarely ask me where I live and what is my home environment like, she said. Where are we living? What we are exposed to is important in thinking about prevention and treatment. In the last two decades, with new technologies, research on air pollution and its impact on the human nervous system has grown by leaps and bounds. Research shows tiny particles bypass the body's filtering systems as they are breathed in through the nose and mouth and travel directly into the brain. Fine and ultra-fine particles, which come from diesel exhaust, soot, dust, and wildfire smoke, among other sources, often contain metals that hitchhike a ride, worsening their impact. A changing climate is likely to exacerbate the effects of air pollution on the brain and mental health. Warmer temperatures react with tailpipe emissions from cars to create more ozone than is generated when it's cooler. And more and larger forest fires are expected to mean more and more days of smoky skies. Ozone linked to neurodegeneration. Ozone has been linked to neurodegeneration, decline in cerebral plasticity, the death of neurons, and learning and, impair and memory impairment. Ozone levels are extremely high in Los Angeles and the mountain valleys of the West, including the Front Range of Colorado, Phoenix, and Salt Lake City. Air pollution also causes damage from chronic inflammation. As air pollution particles enter the brain, they are mistaken for germs and are attacked by microglia, the components of the brain's immune system, and they stay activated. Your body doesn't like to be exposed to air pollution, and it produces an inflammatory response, said Patrick Ryan, a researcher at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, in an email. Your brain doesn't like it either. There's more than 10 years of toxicological science and epidemiologic studies that show air pollution causes neuroinflammation. Much of the current research focuses on how pollution causes mental health problems. Damage to the brain is especially pernicious because it is the master control panel for the body 
and pollution damage can cause a range of neuropsychiatric disorders. A primary focus of research these days is how pollution-caused damage affects areas of the brain that regulate emotions, such as the amygdala, prefrontal cortex, and hippocampus. The amygdala, for example, governs the processing of fearful experiences and depression, and its impairment can cause anxiety and depression. In one recent review, 95% of studies looking at both physical and functional changes to areas of the brain that regulate emotion showed an impact from air pollution. A very large study published in February in JAMA, JAMA Psychiatry, by researchers from the universities of Oxford and Peking and Imperial College London tracked the incidence of anxiety and depression in nearly 400,000 adults in the United Kingdom over a median length of 11 years and found that long-term exposure even to low levels of a combination of air pollutants, particulate matter, nitrogen dioxide, and nitric oxide increased the occurrence of depression and anxiety. Another recent study by Erica Mansack at the University of Denver found adolescents exposed to ozone predicted, quote, four steeper increases in depressive symptoms across adolescent development. But the epidemiological research has shortcomings because of compounding factors that are difficult to account for. Some people may be genetically predisposed to susceptibility and others not. Some may experience chronic stress or be very young or very old, which can increase their susceptibility. People who reside near a lot of green space, which reduces anxiety, may be less susceptible. Folks living in areas where there is greater exposure to pollutants tend to be areas under-resourced in many ways and grappling with a lot of systemic problems. There are bigger reports of stress and depression and anxiety, said Mansek. Given that those areas have been marginalized for a lot of reasons, it's a little hard to say this is due to air pollution exposure. The best way to tell for sure would be to conduct clinical trials, but that comes with ethical problems. We can't randomly expose kids to air pollution, Ryan said. KFF Health News is a national newsroom that produces in-depth journalism about health issues and is one of the core operating programs at KFF, an independent source of health policy, research, polling, and journalism. Learn more at kff.org. Ban on Cities Enacting Rent Control Stays by Elliot Winsler, The Colorado Sun. A bill that would have lifted a 40-year prohibition on Colorado cities and counties imposing rent control in their communities was rejected by a Democratic-majority state Senate committee in April. Senator Dylan Roberts, Democrat of Avon, joined three Republicans on the Senate Housing and Local Government Committee in voting against House Bill 1115, which failed 3-4. to four. Roberts said he feels rent control measures could stifle the developments of more housing and thus hurt affordability efforts. We need to do more of what we have been doing of incentivizing development, helping communities, helping nonprofit home builders, helping low-income people get into affordable rentals and affordable home ownership, he said. I just feel like this bill might be unnecessarily or unintentionally harm the work we've been doing, end quote. 
The measure's prospects were murky from the beginning, with Governor Jared Polis indicating he would veto legislation allowing local rent control policies. The governor has instead sought to solve Colorado's affordable housing crisis by increasing supply. Republicans at the Capitol were universally opposed to the measure. Several House Democrats joined Republicans in voting against the measure when it was debated on the House floor, indicating that the policy wasn't universally liked, even among Democrats. Economists have found that rent control can at times worsen affordability in cities, but proponents of the measure saw it as a key way to prevent runaway housing costs from getting worse in Colorado, as well as being a tool to prevent people from being pushed out of their neighborhoods by rising prices. Representative Javier Mabry, a Denver Democrat and a prime sponsor of the bill, vowed to try again next year. We will be back and we will win, Mabry said on Twitter in the hours after the measure failed. The other lead sponsors of the bill were Representative Elizabeth Velasco, Democrat of Glenwood Springs, and Senator Robert Rodriguez, Democrat of Denver. During a February committee hearing, Mabry amended the measure to try to address his colleagues' concerns about the bill. One amendment required that any city or county enacting rent control must allow rent increases of at least 3% points more than the rate of inflation. Local governments would have also been required to allow, quote, reasonable increases to account for renovations. Another amendment made exceptions for new developments, exempting buildings less than 15 years old from all rent control measures. In his closing comments in the Housing and Local Governments Committee, Rodriguez said he has sympathy for how the policy would impact landlords with only a few properties. But... We're in a world now where investors are buying up properties and manipulating the markets. I'm not sure this bill is going to hurt, he said. This is about keeping people housed. The bill, which would have repealed a 1981 statewide ban on local rent control policies, was one of several measures introduced this session to address the cost of housing in Colorado. The bills have had mixed success. For instance, Senate Bill 213... The governor's major land use measure was expected to be gutted Wednesday morning and no longer include zoning requirements for any Colorado municipality. It will instead form a panel to study affordability needs and plans. Roberts was also the key votes for the governor's land use bill last week, ultimately voting in the Senate Housing and Local Government Committee to advance the measure after the bill was dramatically paired back to remove many requirements for resort communities like the ones he represents. This story is from the Colorado Sun, a journalist-owned news outlet based in Denver and covering the state. For more and to support the Colorado Sun, visit coloradosun.com. Colorado Sun is a partner in the Colorado News Conservancy, owner of Colorado Community Media. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. I'm Gregory Haddock. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice and the Denver Herald. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading, Denver Could Soon Add 50 Affordable Housing Units for Seniors, by Robert Davis. From the Denver Herald, I'll be reading, 
Taking an Alzheimer's Diagnosis a Mile at a Time by Deb Hurley Brobst and Butterfly Pavilion Kicks Off Pollinator Palooza Opens Largest Ever Pollinator Exhibit by Luke Zarzecki. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from the Denver Herald and possibly westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Denver could soon add 50 affordable housing units for seniors by Robert Davis. Denver's Safety and Homelessness Committee tentatively agreed on April 19th to loan $1.25 million to a developer who plans to build 50 affordable housing units for seniors in the Central Park neighborhood. Known as the St. Stephen's Apartments, the new building will serve seniors aged 62 and older who make between $25,000 and $50,000 per year, or 30% to 60% of Denver's area median income. The four-story building, located at 2189 North Valencia Street, could include 45 one-bedroom apartments and five two-bedroom units. It's also located within a tenth of a mile of an RTD bus stop, a half mile of a medical clinic and grocery store, according to a proposal from the Department of Housing Stability. Adam Lyons, a lead housing development officer with HOST, told the council that the average rent at St. Stephen's will range from around $659 for a one-bedroom to nearly $1,200 for a two-bedroom. Groundbreaking is expected to happen in July of 2023, and tenants could begin moving in early 2024, Lyons added. The St. Stephen's project is being proposed at a time when many seniors in Denver are facing an increased risk of losing their homes. According to data from the Metro Denver Homeless Initiative, older women are the fastest growing subpopulation of people experiencing homelessness in Denver. Jamie Reif, MDHI's executive director, told the city council on April 12th that more seniors are becoming homeless because inflation and the rising cost of living are significantly impacting people on fixed incomes. On a fixed income, you can't afford to live here, Reif told the council, and they're also being pushed further and further away from medical care, support systems, and I think that is just one of the challenges we are facing. Last year, the Denver Voice examined poverty trends in Colorado over the last decade and found that black and Hispanic seniors experience poverty at two to three times the rate of their white counterparts. At the same time, living conditions in other senior living facilities have come under increasing scrutiny. In September of 2022, 46 apartments at the Thomas Bean Towers flooded and caused widespread water damage. Some residents told KDVR about their concerns for the health and safety of seniors with chronic illnesses who live in the building. In March 2023, the Arbor View Senior Apartments in Arvada doubled its rent for some residents and gave them a 30-day notice of the change, according to a report from Denver 7. The apartment complex said the rent increase was due to a rise in employee wages and price inflation from its vendors and suppliers. To address some of these issues, the loan from the Denver City Council also includes a 60-year affordability covenant, which restricts the ability of future building owners to raise the rent. Similarly, the building will also be all-electric ready, according to host's proposal. That means that it will include mechanisms to convert gas-powered water heaters into electric ones. It will also include the structural supports for a roof-mounted solar panel system to help cut down on utility costs. The full city council still needs to approve the loan before it is finalized. 
it is expected to appear before the body within the next three weeks. The following articles are from the Denver Herald. Taking an Alzheimer's Diagnosis a Mile at a Time by Deb Hurley-Brobst. Mark Macy is a fighter. The Evergreen resident always has been driven to succeed as an attorney, an endurance athlete, and a devoted family man. Now, at age 69, he continues his drive to succeed in his battle against Alzheimer's disease. He believes that his green diet, exercise, and positive attitude will help him do what many others haven't, beat the disease. Some people think I'm nuts, said Macy, 69, who everyone calls Mace. I believe I can beat it. If I don't, I'm still a happy guy. Mace has lived in Evergreen since 1980 with Pam, his high school sweetheart and wife of 46 years. Mace still runs regularly, sometimes on the family's six-acre property and sometimes with friends who help keep him steady and on track. When Mace got his diagnosis in 2018, considered early-onset Alzheimer's disease because he was 64, the family decided it was not going to hide from the disease, friends, or the community. That's why son Travis Macy, a 2001 Evergreen High School graduate and former EHS English teacher, decided to write a book with Mace about their journey called A Mile at a Time, a father and son's inspiring Alzheimer's journey of love, adventure, and hope. Travis and Mace travel around the country speaking about Alzheimer's disease, and they will be at the Alzheimer's Foundation of America's Alzheimer's and Caregiving Educational Conference on May 17th. The family also will be at the Evergreen Tap House for a book signing that evening. To his credit, Mace decided he was not going to be ashamed of Alzheimer's and not going to hide it, Travis said. He's continued to do that, and honestly, it's turned out that his treatment has been communicating with other Alzheimer's families. Dr. Allison Rice, with the Alzheimer's Foundation of America's Medical, Scientific, and Memory Screening Advisory Board, says Alzheimer's disease is not always obvious, especially at first. We all get more forgetful, and sometimes we get so much clutter in our brains that we may do something wrong or different, like misplace our keys or forget something on the chore list, she explained. The line between forgetfulness and an Alzheimer's disease diagnosis would be when someone suddenly doesn't know where they are, Rice said. They wander off or try to go someplace from the past. Another big one, she added, is not getting words right. Not just mispronouncing, said Rice, who is an associate professor of medicine at the NYU Long Island School of Medicine, but when you can't find the words or when you forget something basic like your own phone number. After a point, it becomes clear that it cannot be attributed to a normal situation. Mace spent his life as a hard-working trial attorney, forsaking sleep to do it all, spending time with his family while working long hours at his practice. He began competing in adventure racing in the 1980s when the grueling sport was forming and competed in all eight Echo Challenge races from 1995 to 2002. Travis, following in his dad's footsteps, became an accomplished ultra-athlete, traveling around the world to race professionally. Prior to Mace's diagnosis, the father and son did hundreds of the same races, mostly solo events in which both entered. We did lots of the same adventure races in which Dad competed on a team with friends, and I raced for the win with a competitive team, Travis explained. In 2019, a year after Mace's diagnosis, 
The duo traveled to Fiji to race in the revived Echo Challenge, a 10-day, 417-mile race with 280 competitors who traversed mountains, rivers, swamps, and oceans, the first time the two had competed on the same team. While the team did not finish, Travis considered it a win because endurance racing doesn't have a category for competitors with Alzheimer's disease. Mace said leading up to his diagnosis, he noticed he wasn't talking properly, making his trial attorney career more difficult. Word finding had become more difficult for him, wife Pam said, but not to where anyone would notice. Mace saw a neurologist and a brain MRI came back normal, so they thought he was in the clear. But the symptoms kept persisting. Things like Mace couldn't read a map, and he suddenly had difficulty pulling a car into a parking space. But concern about Mace's health had to wait while Pam received a kidney transplant. Mace wasn't a match, but he donated one anyway to someone else who needed one. Donors must be in excellent health to donate. When Mace was first diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, the doctor told him to start getting his affairs in order immediately and to take a family trip soon. We weren't surprised by the diagnosis, Pam said, but we were still shocked. He's the healthiest person I know. I've had the health issues, so we thought I'd be the first to go. The diagnosis was reorienting as we think about the future. Travis added, When the diagnosis came, it was not a surprise, but it hit me like a ton of bricks. It was really tough. For me, initially, it was a mad scramble to try to find a cure and treatments. Immediately, we have to figure out finances, putting things into a trust. Maybe we need to build a house on my parents' property so we can take care of them. In hindsight, I was trying to control something uncontrollable. Since his diagnosis nearly five years ago, Mace is losing more cognitive abilities. He no longer drives a car, he sometimes has difficulty reading and writing, and his balance isn't what it once was. In addition to his wife and son, he has strong support from his two daughters, Caitlin Macy Sandoval of Denver and Donovan Macy of Tampa, Florida, plus five grandchildren to play with. Rice said the degree of stress and sadness for both the person with the Alzheimer's diagnosis and that person's loved ones can be overwhelming. The outcome is inevitable, she said. This disease only goes in one direction, and the final pathway is grim. Living with this person you love and watching the loss of that is just horrendous. Plus, caregivers who want to take care of their loved ones themselves face stress and depression because they become fixated on caring for the other person, not themselves. She said caregivers must take care of themselves and lean on family members and friends for support. Travis said Mace has had sayings during races and life. In fact, Mace has a tattoo that says, it's all good training on his forearm because he believes there's value in going through something difficult. That's Mace's attitude towards Alzheimer's disease. The disease's toll can be seen in the races that father and son have undertaken as time goes by. They ran the Leadville 50-mile race in 2021, the Leadville Marathon in 2022, and they are planning to do the Leadville 10K this year. I have realized that winning doesn't matter. I just want to run with my dad, Travis explained. The family knows that Mesa's health continues to deteriorate, so they are planning for the future while still trying to be present in the here and now. Mace wants people to know that people with Alzheimer's disease are like everyone else, and they go on with life, though a little differently. 
Just love the person with Alzheimer's, Pam said. They are the same person. As things change, we will have to change. It's not going to get easier. Pam, already patient with an optimistic outlook, said she's learned that it's okay to ask for help. Pam said it was important for them to reach out to others on the Alzheimer's disease journey to share information and connect and to connect for support. Why stay home and hide, she asked. Travis said connecting with others on the same path has become a new mission, and the big goal of the book is to make a difference and help people. Secondarily, it gave father and son something to do together. We are not Alzheimer experts, Travis said, but we are sharing our story. Mace continues to find happiness in his life, and Travis attributes that to my mom being incredibly supportive and energetic. What is important to know, Mace said, is you will still be okay even after the diagnosis. I'm still an athlete and as good as I ever was. I'm perfectly happy. I have a great family. Butterfly Pavilion kicks off Pollinator Palooza, Open's largest ever pollinator exhibit by Luke Zarzecki. The Butterfly Pavilion kicked off Pollinator Palooza with the opening of a new exhibit on May 2nd with help from Congresswoman Brittany Peterson and Marlon Reese, Colorado's first gentleman. When I think about the challenges that we're facing, having a three-year-old son and what his future looks like, it can be incredibly overwhelming. But it's people like all of you who inspire me to believe that we're going to rise to the occasion and meet this moment, said Peterson. For the next two months, the pavilion will be celebrating pollinators. Their new exhibit, Pollinator Place, will be their largest pollinator-focused exhibit ever, showcasing beetles, ants, and bumblebees. It comes at a time when pollinators and insects are facing continually increasing threats from climate change. Dr. Richard Reading, the Butterfly Pavilion's Vice President of Science and Conservation, sounded the alarm. We are in the midst of the sixth mass extinction on planet Earth, and this one is different than the rest in that it's caused by one of nature's own, people. And unfortunately, insects and invertebrates are not spared by this loss, he said. Reading said some are also calling this period of time the insect apocalypse, pointing to some professionals that believe the planet lost 45% of pollinators in the last few centuries. He emphasized the importance of pollinators to the environment and to humans. Creating soil, purifying water, and pollinating food are among some of their ecosystem services, and said they create one out of every three bites of food people take. He paraphrased a quote from a biologist. If people disappeared, the planet would quickly return to a state of normalcy. But if the invertebrates disappeared, if insects were to disappear... Life as we know it on this planet would disappear altogether, he said. But he also said he's hopeful, as efforts by communities and the Butterfly Pavilion are aiming to help, such as creating pollinator districts within cities and collecting data on butterfly monitoring. Amy Yarger, director of horticulture, said pollinator districts have seen increases in pollinators, and even small actions can make a difference. Pollinator Palooza hopes to get more people involved. Some of the things that all of us can do, whether it's planting a garden, putting out flower pots, can make an impact, she said. In an interview, Reese, Governor Jared Polis's husband, urged residents to talk to their city council members and county commissioners about planting native plants in their jurisdiction. 
There's a tendency to plant non-native, like Kentucky bluegrass, which is beautiful. It's soft and looks pretty, but it's not great for native wildlife, he said. Reese touted a bill he's working on that's moving its way through the legislature, which will limit the use of a group of pesticides called neonicotinoids. He said they're toxic to pollinators. Reese also said the legislature passed a bill for a pollinator license plate that generates funds toward pollinator conservation. How community members can make their own impact and learn more about pollinators can be learned throughout the celebration at the Butterfly Pavilion. Stories from a Horrific Era in History by Bruce Goldberg Paul Galen has vivid memories. He remembers the numerous beatings he took in school because Nazi Germany and Adolf Hitler were determined to wipe out Jews. He remembers Jewish stores being looted. He remembers Jewish families being kicked out of their homes, often put on trains bound to concentration camps. Galen, 87, 